Hi, everyone. This is Jeannie Poole, Editor-in-Chief for the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. Welcome to the podcast for our October 2021 issue. We have 14 articles, the first of which is entitled Prevalence and Potential Genetic Determinants of Young Sudden Unexplained Death Victims with Suspected Arrhythmogenic Mitral Valve Prolapse Syndrome by Dr. Gia DeSessi and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic. This paper is also discussed during a live interview, and I invite you to view this on HRS TV. In this paper, the authors perform a retrospective study of medical records and autopsy reports to summarize whole exome molecular autopsy results in 77 sudden unexplained death victims, of whom 27 were female. The average death age was 20, and 6, or 7.8% of the patients, were found to have myxomatous mitral valve disease as the only potential culpable structural finding. Five out of seven of these had bileaflet involvement, and microscopic LV fibrosis. Two cases were known to have mitral valve prolapse by echo prior to death. A likely ACMGP-LP variant was found more often in those with 3 out of 6 patients versus those without 9 out of 71 cases. These included DMD, TTN, and RYR2 variants and suggest a convergence of a genetically determined maladaptive myocardial an electrical response to mechanical stress due to MVP may place certain patients at high risk for sudden cardiac death. The second paper is called Left Ventricular Activation Time and Pattern Are Preserved with Both Selective and Non-Selective His Bundle Pacing by Drs. Arnold and colleagues from the Hammersmith Hospital in the London, UK. This is a retrospective study of patients who underwent both selective and non-selective His bundle pacing. The authors used multipolar surface epicardial electrical mapping to assess LV synchrony. A total of 20 patients were studied, most of whom, or 12 patients, had underlying left bundle branch block, and the remainder, or 8 patients, had a right bundle branch block or a narrow QRS. The purpose of the procedure was, for the majority of patients, for resynchronization in the setting of a wide QRS. Only patients with data available for both selective and non-selective his bundle pacing were included in the analysis. The results of the study showed that the within-patient change in left ventricular activation time from selective his bundle pacing was non-inferior to non-selective his bundle pacing with a mean difference of negative 5.5 milliseconds. Non-selective his bundle pacing did not prolong the right ventricular activation time, but did prolong the QRS duration. In the group of patients with a narrow QRS, or six patients, non-selective his bundle pacing preserved the left ventricular activation time and yet prolonged the QRS duration and the mean right ventricular activation time when compared with selective his bundle pacing. The authors conclude that non-selective his bundle pacing preserves left ventricular synchrony despite prolonging the QRS duration when compared to selective his bundle pacing. The third paper is also on his bundle pacing, and it is called Impact of Physiologic Pacing on Functional Mitral Regurgitation in Systolic Dysfunction, Initial Echocardiographic Remodeling Findings After His Bundle Pacing by Dr. Upadhyaya and colleagues. This study looked retrospectively at 30 patients with paired echocardiograms obtained before and after his bundle pacing. The mean left ventricular ejection fraction in these patients was 32%. 33% of the patients had a baseline left bundle branch block and 37% of the patients a right bundle branch block. The remainder were either narrow or paced. The mean follow-up time was about 17 months. The authors found that significant reductions in left ventricular and systolic volume were seen, and the mean left ventricular ejection fraction increased from 31 to 37%. 
Seven of the 10 patients with grade three or four mitral insufficiency at baseline had substantial reductions noted. Reduction in mitral regurgitation correlated with a decrease in the left ventricular and systolic volume, improved ejection fraction, and more narrowing of a paced QRS. The authors conclude that in this small study, his bundle pacing reduced mitral regurgitation severity along with improved left ventricular ejection fraction and reduced left ventricular volumes. Next is a paper entitled Optimizing Mechanically Sensed Atrial Tracking in Patients with AV Synchronous Leadless Pacemakers, a Single Center Experience by Dr. Arps and colleagues. This paper evaluates patients with the Medtronic Micra AV Pacemaker for demonstration of successful AV synchrony. The authors evaluate 50 patients who undergo optimization programming at their implant follow-up visits. The patients were 48% women. 48% also had complete AV block, and the remaining had a requirement for greater than 50% pacing. Following the implant, the mean tracking index was 41% for the patients. Majority of the patients, or 70%, received at least one programming change despite optimization at the time of implant. This involved maximizing the atrial sensitivity by adjusting the A4 threshold lower. In the complete heart block patients, the changes made improved atrial tracking and thereby the total AV synchrony. An interesting observation was that there was a lower total AV synchrony in patients with equal to or greater than 50% pacing burden compared with those with less pacing. The authors conclude that follow-up is important to maximize AV synchrony in patients who receive the micro-AV pacemaker. The next paper is Performance of First Pacemaker to Use Smart Device App for Remote Monitoring by Drs. Tarakji and colleagues. This is a paper that examines the success of pacemaker transmission in patients using a remote monitoring service with Bluetooth low energy technology. This technology allows communication with the patient's personal smart device via an app. The study, termed BlueSync Field Evaluation, is a prospective cohort enrolling 245 patients with a pacemaker or CRT pacemaker from national and international sites. The success of scheduled remote monitoring transmissions in this study is compared to three historical control groups from the Medtronic CareLink database. These groups included pacemaker patients whose device transmission was accomplished using a manual wand with a bedside console. The second group of patients were those who used wireless automatic communication with a bedside console. And the third group were defibrillator patients also using an automatic wireless communication. The results of this study showed that amongst the 245 patient study cohort, 953 transmissions were scheduled over 12 months with a 94.6% successful completion rate. This rate was compared to the three historical groups where the successful transmission rate was 56.3% for the pacemaker manual transmissions, 77% for the pacemaker wireless, and 87% for the defibrillator patient's historical cohort. The smart device app method remains superior across age, gender, and device type matched cohorts. The authors conclude that this technology may result in better patient engagement and adherence to remote monitoring. The next paper is Association of Chronic Kidney Disease and End-Stage Renal Disease with Procedural Complications and In-Hospital Outcomes from Left Atrial Appendage Occlusion Device Implantation in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation. 
insights from the National Inpatient Sample of 36,065 procedures by Drs. Munir and colleagues. This study focuses on the safety of left atrial appendage occlusion in patients with significant kidney disease. The data are derived from the National Inpatient Sample between 2015 to 2018, identifying atrial fibrillation patients who underwent left atrial appendage occlusion with a Watchman device. The study outcomes were procedural complications and in-hospital outcomes of mortality and resource utilization. Amongst 36,065 Watchman recipients, 9.8% had CKD and 3% had end-stage renal disease. The authors found a higher prevalence of major complications and mortality in a crude analysis compared to no CKD. Following a multivariate adjustment, CKD was associated with increased length of stay by greater than one day and increased median cost by greater than $24,663, and also was associated with acute kidney injury with an odds ratio of 4.134. End-stage renal disease was associated with inpatient mortality with an odds ratio of 7.156. This study is important data identifying that complications, length of stay, and hospital costs were higher in patients with CKD or ESRD. The authors also suggest that further large-scale trials are required to understand the net clinical benefit of left atrial appendage occlusion in AF patients with CKD or ESRD. The title of the next paper is Effect of ganglionated plexi ablation by high-density mapping on long-term suppression of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, the first clinical survey on ablation of the dorsal right plexus by Dr. Morita and colleagues from the Tokyo University in Japan. In this study, the authors compare outcomes of 157 paroxysmal atrial fibrillation patients who undergo GPS ablation prior to PVI and compare the ablation success outcomes to a group of 68 patients who underwent PVI alone. This observational study looks at long-term outcomes of additive ganglionated plexus ablation in 225 PAF patients of whom 157 had GP ablation followed by PVI in 68 who underwent PVI alone. The authors used high-density mapping with high-frequency stimulation delivered to the left atrial major GPs. Among the 157 who underwent GP ablation, 85 had ablation of the GP in the dorsal right atrium. The authors found that those patients with GP ablation, in addition to PVI, resulted in a higher rate of freedom from AF at four years of follow-up, or 57 versus 38% respectively. The authors conclude that additive ganglionated plexus ablation guided by high-density mapping with high-frequency stimulation conferred a greater AF suppression effect than PVI alone. They also draw attention to the possible importance of GP ablation of the dorsal right atrium. The next paper is titled Impact of Left Atrial Posterior Wall Isolation on Arrhythmia Outcomes in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation Undergoing Repeat Ablation by Dr. Potanini and colleagues. The paper looks at left atrial posterior wall isolation in addition to PVI in 196 AFib patients with repeat ablation. PAF was present in 69% and persistent in the remaining 39% of the patients. The primary endpoint was one-year freedom from any atrial arrhythmia off of antiarrhythmic drugs, and the secondary endpoint was freedom from antiarrhythmic drugs or off of antiarrhythmic drugs at one year of follow-up. The 196 patients, 93, underwent pulmonary vein re-isolation, and 103 patients underwent left atrial posterior wall isolation plus pulmonary vein repeat isolation. 
Patients who underwent the left atrial posterior wall isolation group were older, had more hypertension and persistent AF, and lower rates of PV connection, 52% versus 100% respectively. Empiric left atrial posterior wall isolation was performed in most of the group that underwent the additive procedure, or 80%, and then the remaining 20% was directed at target triggers. The left atrial posterior wall isolation included linear lesions across the left atrial floor and roof alone in 65%, and additional left atrial posterior wall lesions in 35%. The primary finding was achieved similarly in the left atrial posterior wall isolation group, 43.7%, and the PVI alone group, 69.9%, with a p-value of 0.50. There was also no significant difference in the secondary endpoint between the two groups. The key findings that the authors note are that first, pulmonary vein reconnection is seen in the majority of patients undergoing repeat AF ablation, and second, that left atrial posterior wall isolation does not improve long-term arrhythmia outcomes beyond pulmonary vein isolation in this study, and that further studies are required. And finally, the left atrial posterior wall isolation can be achieved in a majority of patients with endocardial ablation alone. This paper is followed by a nice editorial entitled Recurrent Atrial Fibrillation After Pulmonary Vein Isolation, Box It or Not by Drs. Adam Barnett and Tristram Bonson. The next paper is called Catheter Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation Results in Significant QTC Prolongation in the Post-Operative Period by Drs. Nian and colleagues. This interesting retrospective study from a single center looked at 352 patients who underwent PBI for AF ablation. Post-operative ECGs were examined, if available, at baseline, post-procedure, day one post-procedure, as well as at 30 and 90 days. The authors identified a statistically significant increase in the QTC compared to the baseline ECG in the immediate and post-op day one ECGs. This increase was about 10 to 20 milliseconds for the overall group. The one-month and three-month QTCs, however, were not significantly different from baseline. However, in 66 patients, a delta in the QTC of equal to or greater than milliseconds or a QTC of equal to or greater than 500 milliseconds was observed on the post-op ECG with 41% of those persisting out beyond 90 days. The female sex odds ratio was 1.82 and coronary artery disease was 2.16 and these were independently predictive of QTC prolongation equal to or greater than 500 milliseconds or a delta QTC of equal to or greater than 60 milliseconds. Being on an antiarrhythmic drug, and 50% of those were on antiarrhythmic drugs during follow-up, was not independently predictive. No patient had known clinically significant ventricular arrhythmias or death attributable to arrhythmia. This is an interesting finding and worth being aware of in the post-AF ablation procedure patients. The title of the next paper is Computational ECG Mapping and respiratory gating to optimize stereotactive ablative radiotherapy workflow for refractory ventricular tachycardia by authors Drs. Ho and colleagues. This paper focuses on how to improve the workflow to perform radiotherapy ablative procedures, specifically looking at the cardiorespiratory motion and relative proximity of the VT target to the stomach, examining six patients from two different hospital sites. All six patients had refractory VT and underwent 3D computational ECG non-invasive studies to localize the exit sites. These were compared to the patient's prior studies with invasive VT mapping. The process for delivery of the RT was to target end expiration when cardiac respiratory motion was equal to or greater than 0.6 centimeters or targets were equal to or less than 2 centimeters from the stomach. The important observation is that when respiratory gating was used, 
This resulted in a, in a smaller target volume area compared to non-gated volumes, 71 versus 153 cc's respectively. Two of the six patients had a VT target along the inferior wall, which placed this within six millimeters proximity to the stomach or had significant cardiorespiratory motion of 22 millimeters excursion respectively. The authors observed no gastrointestinal adverse effects during follow-up out to 12 months. The VT ablation results showed a decrease in ICD shocks from 23 per patient to 0.67 per patient at an average of six months of follow-up. Thus, the authors suggest that computational ECG mapping for respiratory gating was feasible and appeared to improve SABR planning and may improve safety of the procedure for patients with VT located in the inferior left ventricle. The next paper is called the RV1 to V3 Transition Ratio, a Novel Electrocardiographic Criterion for the Differentiation of Right versus Left Outflow Tract Premature Ventricular Complexes by doctors Ephraimides and colleagues from multiple international sites. The authors measured the ratio for the R wave in V1 to V3 in 58 patients undergoing ablation for outflow tract PVCs. They defined the ratio as the RV1 plus RV2 plus RV3 of the PVC divided by the RV1 plus RV2 plus RV3 of the sinus rhythm beat. The authors found that the ratio was lower for right ventricular outflow tract origins than left ventricular outflow tract origins, with a median of 0.6953 versus 1.5219, with a significant p-value less than 0.001. The ROC analysis showed an AUC of 0.856 for the ratio, and the cutoff value of 0.9 predicted an LVOT origin with a 94% sensitivity and a 73% specificity. The authors note that this ratio was superior to previously proposed ECG criterion for differentiating right from left ventricular outflow tract PVCs and is a simple to use ECG criterion. The next paper is titled, Maximizing Detection and Optimal Characterization of Local Abnormal Ventricular Activity in Non-Ischemic Cardiomyopathy, Lava Max and Lava Flow by Drs. Meg Tabi and colleagues in Toronto, Canada. The authors explore activation direction of local abnormal ventricular activity, or LAVA, in a study using four human hearts with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. The primary objective was to maximize voltages and calculate the overall activation direction at LAVA sites independent of catheter and wave direction using omnipolar technology. The authors performed epicardial mapping using a high-density grid. They then identified bipolar electrograms with at least two activation segments that were separated by at least 25 milliseconds. Next, they used the omnipolar technology to maximize voltages, referred to as lava max, and then measured the overall wave direction, referred to as lava flow, for both of the segments. Clinically relevant voltage proportion was used to estimate the proportion of directionally correlated bipoles. The authors then looked at the concordance and changes in direction vectors. The primary results show that the omnipolar technology identified higher lava voltages compared to bipolar electrograms, 0.8 versus 0.6 millivolts, respectively. The author's concluding key points are that first, the omnipolar methodology is a technique independent of catheter orientation and not reliant upon time activation and can be successfully used to analyze voltage fields at local abnormal ventricular activity sites of non-ischemic cardiomyopathic hearts. The second finding is that omnipolar methodology allowed for independent maximization of individual voltage components of lava signals, which could help electrophysiologists to be certain that detection and elimination of lava is successfully accomplished. 
Thirdly, the authors identified that wave characteristics of individual components of lava potentials could be characterized from the voltage fields calculated with omnipolar methodology. And finally, in addition, the authors suggested this process could unmask conduction routes at lava sites that are otherwise undetectable with traditional bipolar mapping. The final paper is a brief report by Dr. Thomas Kleeman and others entitled Management of Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Patients with Appropriate ICD Shocks, a Three-Step Treatment Concept. The purpose of this prospective study was to analyze the management of patients with ICD shocks and to develop a treatment concept. The authors identified 601 consecutive patients from a single-center prospective ICD registry with a first appropriate ICD shock occurring between the years 2000 and 2018. The authors then reviewed how the patients were managed and put together a treatment plan concept which was then tested prospectively in 80 patients enrolled after the year 2018. The authors proposed a management strategy that involves three steps with the acronym TUBAMI or capital T-O-V-A-M-I. First, TO stands for Trigger Optimization with the following triggers identified ischemia, compliance, decompensation, stress, a technical issue, or medication intoxication. The next two letters are VA, which stand for ventricular arrhythmia treatment. And the final two letters are MI, which stand for medical and interventional prognostic heart failure treatment. In the prospective analysis of the 80 patients using this management strategy, this identified twice as many identifiable triggers and improved the rate of optimized heart failure treatment from only 7% up to 36%. So this brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you enjoy the October 2021 issue.